Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Paul Ken, one of your hosts, and with me, as always, is my co-host and bat cousin, Sean M. Myers. How are you this month, Sean? I am great. I'm happy that here at the reunion, our Uncle Casey is over at the Horseshoe Pit catching up with Cousin Chris. They have a lot in common. We can talk to each other for hours. Oh, that's awesome. I'm doing pretty well, too. But watch out. Over on the west side at the Wayne Family Gardens, Great Aunts Zoe and Anne are going at it about who has the best apple pie. You don't want to get in the middle of that. It could be a catastrophe. Anyway, I am really excited today because we have another guest at the reunion this month. In fact, a member of my real family sitting right here in the bat cave at the Ken household. Welcome to his first ever podcast, my real life brother-in-law, Todd Sarenbetz. How are you doing, Todd? What dish did you bring today? Hey, Paul. Hey, Sean. Thank you for having me. I actually brought my outdoor pizza oven. Because I thought my cousins would love for me to make some of my homemade, hand-tossed, Neapolitan-style pizzas. So we're going to do that today and make as many pizzas as we want. I think I've got about 50 dough balls ready to go. <laughs> ready to go for a big party. <laughs> All right. That sounds great. And his pizzas are great, by the way. He does this in his oven. So fantastic. All right. So, Sean, do you want to get us started and tell everybody at home about the show? Absolutely. Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978 and then rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era of the Batman family reunion. So, Todd, before we get started, please tell us about your relationship with the Batman family. How did you get into the book? Who's your favorite Bat family member? All that kind of stuff. All right. Well, thanks. Well, Sean, I actually have a very similar secret origin to you where Batman Family number seven is probably one of the very first comic books I have ever purchased. Unlike you, though, I purchased my first Batman Family way down in the country of Columbia, Cali, Columbia specifically, at the uh, local Sears. So when I was young, my family lived down in Columbia. My dad worked for a few uh, international companies throughout his career, and we were down there for a couple of years. And that was really the only place where I could go to get English material to read. And obviously, as a seven, eight-year-old, it was the beginning of my reading career. Comics were, like, obviously my favorite once I started to get to read them. So I bought a lot of Batman Family, Batman, Captain America, Spider-Man. Those were among my first books that I purchased. And Batman Family number seven was the very first Batman family that I ever had. So when Paul was doing this podcast, he mentioned that we'd love to you know, have you join. I was like, great. And he asked me, well, what book would you like? I was like, well, my first one was number seven. And he paused and he said, <laughs> oh, that's Sean's very first. So we're going to do a special episode for that, which is totally fine. But I wanted to just sort of tell you how much that really was. And it still is, I think, my favorite Batman family issue. Next one, number 11, I think is another one that I really enjoyed too. So very similar origin. As to my favorite Batman family member definitely has to be Robin. Paul knows this very well. Robin was always one of my favorite characters, not just when I was young, but obviously then in the early 80s when he graduated to a very grown-up title of the New Teen Titans. That was my favorite comic 
comic book of all time. And and obviously his transition to Nightwing, I immensely loved. So yeah, Robin slash Nightwing has been my favorite character. Dick Grayson, not only is he cool and handles himself well under pressure, but he does pretty well with the ladies too. So uh, <laughs> I always admired that as a young teenager, how well he did, not just with women on Earth, but also uh, interplanetary uh, women as well. Fantastic. All right. And by the way, we are both using our tune tumblers in my house. Todd has the Robin glass. I have the Batgirl glass. Anyway, why don't we get into the issue? We are going to talk about Batman Family number 10. The cover date was March, April 1977. It came out just before Christmas on December 23rd of 1976. 48 pages for 50 cents. Same it has been for the last several months. For the last time, we get one new story with two reprints. This is indeed the last issue where we have reprints. The cover artist was John Cownan, inked by Dick Giordano. What do you think of this cover, guys? Todd, do you want to start? Sure. Overall, I like the cover. As a young kid, I'm sure it really appealed to me. You've got several figures in the foreground, very dynamic pose. But as an older guy, I'm looking at it now and think that there was a bit of a missed opportunity with this cover and that when you look at the actual story, you've got giant moths and you've got the Cavalier really large with Batgirl and Batwoman in his, in his hands. I kind of think that that would probably, if I was an editor now, I would probably said, let's go the, the big monster route as opposed to this configuration. And I know Sean, you're not a big fan of the boxes in the covers. And I know there is a bit of a box here. And that's the other thing, too. I think if you had Batwoman actually as part of the action, I think that would have been a better way to go. I still bought it as a kid, so it, it, it still worked. worked. But overall, I thought the poses and the line art is really good. People know I hate boxed covers. However, in this case, I may allow it because that box has Batwoman. <laughs> I love Batwoman. But if they could have shrunken down the Batman family logo and put Batwoman way back in the foreground, I guess, that would have been great. However, I love this cover. I love the poses. And I understand what you're saying about, you know, there might have been more dramatic moments in the story. I love this cover and especially how Batgirl's leg is coming out through the goop. I just think it lends such a dimensionality to this and that goop. I always wonder what the consistency is, what that feels <laughs> like. Probably at this point when I first saw it, it probably made me think of super elastic bubble plastic. Is that the one where you blew into a straw and yeah. it got big and... Yeah, and it was this plastic circle that you would make. That's always what I consider the consistency of the goop. I wonder if they had those in Scotland. We have to find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah. We'll say it up front. The Cavalier and Killer Moth are not A-list villains, but their poses on the cover are fantastic. You were talking about your tune tumblers. Either one of those poses would make a great tune tumbler pose. And the poses make them look much more imposing than what they really are in the story. But I, I absolutely love this cover. I love it. I like the art on the cover. My problems with a lot of the copy. I like word balloons on covers, but we have to use them to describe the danger. I, I don't, we can see she's in danger here, right? We know that they're after him. I think that the fact that it's co-starring the Dynamite duo, there's a little false advertising there. Robin's not in this story at all. Yeah, there's not even a new Robin story. Yeah. We don't have a banner at the bottom saying what the backups are like we used to. So other than that, it's good. The powder blue, is a little unusual so i think that made it stand out on the stands mm -hmm. a little bit and also one thing i want to say and i promise i will not do this for every issue but this is the second issue that i bought off of the stands there you go and i can remember i was hanging out with my school friend ted decello and we went into spring grove and i saw this on the newsstand and bought it like i absolutely remember that day like, wow. it was great 
going forward, I had almost all of them dating, maybe like one or two missing, but this started it. The other thing I wanted to bring up is in pop music, there's a fairly new term called the artist's imperial phase. And that's when an artist could do no wrong, like every album they released, every single, every video, like they made headlines, whatever group you like, they have an imperial phase where they were just at the top of their game. I really think Batman Family number 10 is the start of the imperial phase. And that runs pretty much from this issue until a little bit into the detective comics for the next 14 issues. Now there's one or two that are a little bit of a dip. For me, this is the promise of Batman family. If you have Batgirl and Batwoman meeting for the first time, that's Batman family. Very good. Well, before we jump into the story, I actually want to do a spotlight on John Cowan, who was the cover artist for this issue. In addition to some biographical info, I found an interview from 2011 conducted by a guy named Brian Stroud of NerdTeam30.com, which was actually a pretty cool website that I just discovered. So check it out. Anyway, John Cowan was born back in 1932, and he ended up attending the School of Visual Arts in New York. One of his instructors was Jerry Robinson. Uh, John says that Jerry was a very good instructor and gave some valuable tips about cartooning work. At the school, John met Tom Gill, who our listeners may know was famous for illustrating the Lone Ranger from Dell for over 11 years, from 1951 to 1962. After graduating, John's first comic book work was inking Gill's pencils on the Lone Ranger. But John points out in the interview that all that was uncredited. In fact, on Mike's Amazing World, you don't see any of those credits. He also did some other uncredited work for Classics Illustrated and other Westerns. But then John got work at an advertising agency and in his words, quote, let go of doing comics work. He became an advertising and TV art director. But by 1966, he came back and started working for DC on the side. And according to the interview, quote, I became an advertising art director and TV producer for agencies and still kept the comic work on the side. I worked all the way up through the early 80s with the agencies, and then I went completely freelance. I kept my hand in the comics and also freelanced on advertising work. A pretty good career, I think. I retired in 1996. But when asked how long it took him to do a page, Callan responded, well, considering the fact that I worked all day, it took me quite a few hours at night to do it because I wouldn't get home until seven o'clock at night. I'd have dinner and then I'd get to work. I was still doing freelance work for the agencies at that time too. So sometimes I'd have to prioritize. I can't do a page tonight. I'll have to do it tomorrow night. Still, I always delivered the story on time. I fortunately had a very tolerant wife. <laughs> His uh, 175 story credits, which totaled up about 1,600 pages from 1966 to 1982, when he stopped working in comics for good, were all with DC. He started out with a number of mystery and suspense titles and unexpected witching hour, ghosts, did a few war stories. One of the ghost stories was an interesting three-pager starring the ghost of James Dean, which I thought you did not find interesting, Sean. <laughs> Interestingly, if you look at his credits on Mike's Amazing World, you will see him listed sometimes penciler, sometimes anchor, sometimes artist. He was pretty accomplished. He could do all three. Another interesting fact that he did not do very many covers. According to Mike's, he only did 10 covers altogether, most of which he was inking over Ernie Chan for World's Finest. He only did pencils for two covers, one was a DC special, one of the ones starring the Three Musketeers, you remember that? And the other was this cover right here. So this is one of his very few covers that he did, which I thought was neat. And then one of the reasons, probably the main reason I wanted to do the spotlight on him was about six months from now, in mid-1977, Callan becomes the main penciler on Batman for about a year and a half. He notably started with a four-part story starting in Batman number 291, 
later it's been known now known as the many deaths of the batman oh yeah yeah where the villains were telling how each of them had killed batman and of course batman rounded them up at the end this was one of my favorites when i was a kid dc didn't do that many continued stories and 12 year old paul was waiting with bated breath for the next issue and of course everybody loves the very similar animated series episode almost got him which, while it doesn't say, I checked the credits, it doesn't say anywhere that it was inspired, but obviously was inspired by that storyline. Kalman was the artist for those four issues. His last issue of Batman was 309 from 78, which is one I'm sure you like, Sean. It's called Have Yourself a Deadly Little Christmas. The <laughs> villain in that one was Blockbuster. Uh-huh. And you will remember the cover. It's the one that's outlined in white. Got Christmas holly all around it and garland. Now, the cover was by Jim Aparo, but the insides were John Calman and by Frank McLaughlin. John seemed pleased by the variety of his credits. He says, quote, I worked on so many different things at DC. It's amazing I got that much work out of them. I did War Books, Young Love, Unexpected, Witching Hour, Ghost, Teen Titans. I did some stuff on Superman. I had Metamorpho for a year and a half, something like that. One thing nice about him was he couldn't screw his figure up because he kept changing so much. <laughs> I think I got it shortly after Ramona Frayden left to do Brenda Starr. And I remember, gee, I got to change completely for this one. But it turned out to be a lot of fun working on it. As I mentioned, Calvin retired in 1996. He passed away in 2016 at the age of 84. He got to work with some great creators, the ones I mentioned already, but also he inked people like Dick Dillon and Rich Buckler and was inked by people like Tex Blazel and Dick Giordano, whom he particularly liked. So that's a little bit about John Callan. I hope you think that was interesting. I think it's amazing how things have changed, right? Most of DC's output today centers around Batman. And back in 1977, the artist on the main Batman title was a guy who did it on the side. <laughs> That's great. I had no idea. And the Christmas story, I absolutely know that one. And the many deaths. I love that story. Yeah. Paul, just to tie it into the issue today that we're talking about, that story, the Batman story, where they're recounting all of the, they each killed Batman. Our friend, the Cavalier, was a guest. He was? He was in that episode. Excellent. But he, he doesn't, I don't think he even has a line. I think he's just there in the background. I forget. Good pull. You're absolutely right. And we will post the image of this cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our Family Portrait Gallery on the network's website. Paul, remind our listeners where that is. That is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Look for the show, Batman Family Reunion. Let's go ahead and jump into that first story, Sean. Okay. Our first story is Those Were the Bad Old Days. And it stars Batgirl with Batwoman. It's 17 pages, written by our Bat cousin, Bob Rosakis, and penciled by Bob Brown, inked by Vince Coletta. And this is reprinted in Batgirl, the Bronze Age Omnibus, Volume 1 hardcover from 2018. Batgirl and Batwoman in Those Were the Bad Old Days. The opening splash page is almost a recreation of the cover, but with Batwoman swinging in to rescue Batgirl from Killer Moth and the Cavalier. As Batgirl escapes the clutches of Killer Moth's goop gun, Batwoman takes out the Cavalier before he can strike Batgirl. Once Batgirl sees Batwoman, she takes a trip down memory lane to recall how this case began. A few days prior, while reading over some listener feedback, oh, I'm sorry, I mean fan mail, Barbara Gordon reads two letters. The first asking her why she doesn't go by the moniker of Batwoman, and the second inviting her to the anniversary of the opening of the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. Yay! Dick Grayson ties both of the letter topics together when Babs calls Dick to invite him along. At the airport, Batgirl quickly interrupts the Cavalier from trying to steal a woman's purse. Then, later that day, Babs meets up with Kathy Kane, 
a former jet setter who is now the owner and manager of a traveling circus and is also Batwoman. Unfortunately, their conversation is cut short by a humongous moth chomping away at the prison where the Cavalier is being held. Batgirl swings into action, which then inceptions us back to the beginning of the story. Babs and Kathy work together to take down Killer Moth, but are stunned when a giganta-sized Cavalier places them on the top of the roof of the jail, but he doesn't. He somehow got a hold of the illusion maker from the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. The story then jumps to the U.S. frigate Old Ironsides, where, when humongous moths show up, both Babs and Kathy run into action and discover each other's identities before wire-walking her way up to the action, Batwoman, and trapezing her way up to the fight, Batgirl. The women make short work of the men, and then they wrap up the plot while riding a Ferris wheel. Or are they? After all, we are at the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. <laughs> what did you think of the story? Go ahead, Todd. Well, it's interesting. You know, as a kid, I probably love this story because you've got giant killer moths. You've got giant sized human crashing into jails and everything like that. But rereading it as a 54 year old, I had a lot of questions about the plot. <laughs> Welcome to Batman family. <laughs> the funny thing is, because I never had read issue number three up until I actually started listening to your podcast. Yep. So I went back and reread number three. I'm like, what is the deal with this machine that? <laughs> can like generate <laughs> images and then somehow be real and have them feel like they're up on the roof of the jail and but they're down instead on the ground and then all of a sudden it disappears and and after reading three all of your questions were yeah i, I don't know why i ever had a question <laughs> what is this the spanish inquisition when i listened to your podcast paul i was i listened to it again on the way over here and i was laughing because you had no idea what the deal with the spanish inquisition joke was and i'm going oh my gosh it was monty python but yes, anyway I, I got taken to task for that one <laughs> but anyway yeah there's a lot of implausibilities in this story to say the least i think overall sean i don't know what it is i, I never read a lot of stories about her but i love batwoman and I, I don't know if it's just her costume or what but the fact that having batgirl and batwoman together in the same story i really did like that there's definitely some panels that i think are very funny the cavalier's entrance into this story was a little suspicious because i i don't think he really brings a whole lot to the party of this heist seems like this is kind of like killer moth's deal and then obviously he kind of jeopardized is the whole plan to begin with when he just decides to go on a, a robbery spree in the airport and he lands up in jail. My favorite panel is probably the one where you see him from the outside in the jail and he's all sad looking. <laughs> right above Kathy's head. Yeah. To me, it's like the least secure jail in America because <laughs> he's just sitting there visible in the, the outdoors main... looking out to everybody. Uh, the main streets right there. Right, I'm so right, right I don't know why people aren't nagging him or anything like that. <laughs> It's, it's a very sad spirit of Halloween store, it looks like. You've got... <laughs> Anyway, I don't really quite know what Cavalier brings to this heist. You really think about what the heist is. It's never really explained. They're going to capture old Ironsides and then do what? I assume ransom it or or whatever. But again, you have to suspend your disbelief. You have to just sort of roll with it. And it really is just a story, I'm sure, that Bob created that just really brought Batgirl and Batwoman together and then and allowed them to have that conversation on the Ferris wheel. But I do like your point, Sean. Were they really on the Ferris wheel? Because who knows? <laughs> 
<laughs> on the mysterious isle of a thousand, a million, whatever illusions. I did overall like the story, but it is a little perplexing at times, but you have to sort of go with it. And before we get to Paul, you were saying Killer Moth's plan about ransoming the boat, even when it's not. It's very like making the Statue of Liberty disappear. David Copperfield yeah. making the Statue of Liberty disappear. It's kind of like that scam kind of. Yeah, no one's going to back a day later and go, I wonder yeah. like, where did it go? I, oh, wait a minute, it's still here. What happened? <laughs> Oh, what did you think of the story? Yeah, I enjoyed the story too. As in most of these, the best part is the interpersonal stuff. Although I have to say, like you guys, I love seeing the tech from the Island of a Thousand Thrills show up. I had totally forgotten that till a few weeks ago when I reread it for the first time in years. So that was pretty cool. Batwoman is a big deal, right? I looked it up. Her last appearance prior to this was in Detective 325 from 1964. That was her last incontinuity appearance. So over 12 years, I was trying to find, was she ever an owner of a carnival before? <laughs> so that was new. That Bob Zakis or Julie Schwartz invented that. That was new. I would have seen her in reprints, obviously the earlier reprints in Batman Family, but this would have been the first new story that I would have seen her in too. Well, first of all, I absolutely love the story. A lot of it does not make sense, especially like looking at it as an adult. And I don't even care. I accept that and I don't care. I'm moving on. I'm living in my feelings or whatever you want to say. I think the artwork on Batwoman is fantastic, especially the third story page where Batgirl sees Batwoman for the first time and Batwoman's just standing there, almost like regally. Yeah, she looks great in that panel. Yeah, I love that. And I'll try to make this the last time I say it doesn't make sense, which is fine. I understand what Todd is saying about the Cavalier not adding anything. And I think that's true plot-wise, heist-wise. I think that's true. But he is an excellent foil at this time because of women's lib and him being very old school. That's a good point. I guess technically chauvinistic, a woman can't do this. You should have saved that for Gabriel's horn. <laughs> I debated, but I did have other things. But yeah, that definitely can tie into the times. And they talk about liberation, like liberating that woman's purse. And so I think that's why the Cavalier is there. I looked up Killer Moth's appearances and the Cavalier appearances, and they both had maybe like five or six appearances before that, counting older too. I don't think that I've ever read Cavalier. Definitely when I read it the first time, I had no idea who this was. And even now, I don't know that I've ever read any Cavalier. I'm guessing that this chauvinistic character aspect, I think that was probably created for the story. He's an old-timey guy, which is probably where Rosakis got it from, I would think. Yeah, good point. And Cousins, if you know I'm wrong, I welcome you to let me know, because I'll, I'll see if I can find those old stories and read them. So if you know that he's been a chauvinist before this, please let me know. When I think especially Sean at the end of, and when they're in the fight on they're on the moss and he says to Batgirl you know it's against my code to hit a woman so I think you're right I think that is definitely a nod to the women's lib movement which obviously ties into what her thoughts were at the very beginning of the story right. about changing her name to Batwoman instead of Batgirl so it's a very nuanced argument and having him in there so yeah so I stand corrected now I totally understand why he's in there so uh, yeah it's good that you picked that up and I like the story construction as we're finding out seems to be very Bob Rosakis. You start off with action, you start off with something happening, and then it goes into a flashback, just like my first issue, where you're finding out how Batgirl got kidnapped. Same thing, like you start off with the action of the goop gun, and then Batwoman shows up, and that starts Babs on her flashback. Now I love story constructions like that. It's very neat. You mentioned the splash page having the same scene from the cover, but from a different perspective. I always wondered where Batwoman is swinging in from. 
right there in the middle of a field. <laughs> so they just kind of shoehorned her in there. But nonetheless, it's still a good page. But I, I like the double page spread on pages two and three better. You yeah. mentioned that great panel of Babs turning around saying, Batwoman and Batwoman, Kathy looking very regal. So I, I like that. Maybe Batwoman has her own illusion machine. And <laughs> She's actually just running up the field, but she thought I'm a little more dramatic. It'll make me swing in and, and yeah. fool them a little bit. You mentioned it in your synopsis, Sean. I love the fan letters Batgirl is getting. So I was going to save it till the end, but why don't we talk about it now? What do you guys think would have happened if they had let Babs be Batwoman? They invented Batgirl currently with the TV show, right? And she was Batgirl for the show and to distinguish her from the Batwoman character from the 50s. But they had no plans to bring her back until now. This very well could have gone a different direction if they had said, yeah, let's start calling Batgirl Batwoman. I mean, she's no longer on the TV show. Was it purely a marketing slash merch type situation, which is my suspicion why they didn't do it? Yeah, you guys are both nodding. Underoos. And especially back in these days, you had character associations. For the longest time, they said that's why they're not changing Robin, because they have to have Robin in that costume so they can sell sweatshirts and merchandise and all of that. And it's only when someone hit upon well, then let's create a new Robin. And, right. and that way Dick Grayson can Now we have grow up. tons of Robins, tons of Batgirls. We're all set. But let's play a thought experiment. What would the later 70s into the 80s pre-crisis have ended up looking like if they had decided to go that direction? Maybe she could have had a, a sidekick named Batgirl, right? And she would have been Batwoman. Well, I was going to bring up. So if Barbara became Batwoman, you could have had a story point where is that infringing Betty's I don't know if it's Bet or Betty Kane that hyphen girl would she have found umbrage with that like she should have taken over Batwoman I mean it could have been all kinds of stories right or would maybe they have teamed up then Babs Batwoman and Bet Betty Kane could have been Batgirl that way that frees up Batgirl for her Bob Rizakis wanted to do a love triangle in the Teen Mm -hmm. Titans he told us in the interview between Dick and Duella and Betty Kane, yeah. right? And so she's Dick's age. And then again, on the TV show, there was a notion that she could have been Batman's love interest. So I'm wondering if instead of aging her back down to where Robin would have been, it could have very well been that she was more akin to Batman's age and they could have become an item, which would have been a whole different set of stories. And then Bat-Girl, Betty Kane, she could have become more of a character or some other character. So anyway, lots of different story ideas. It's interesting to think about. I'm curious if any of our Bat-Cousins have any ideas of that alternate world. What famous stories could have happened? Would they have let Alan Moore do the killing joke then to Babs or would have been a different character what different facts would have played out i find that interesting to think about stuff like that and also it would have been really neat maybe not in batman family 10 but Mm -hmm. i would have liked barbara and kathy to have been a mentor mentee or even just a friendship for issues and issues and issues to go on and then so i don't like to talk about this but there's a future issue of detective comics that i absolutely hate and despise and will absolutely not be doing the synopsis of however after that event then maybe Batgirl could have taken on the mantle of Batwoman yeah. to honor her right. for that yeah that would have been another good spot like this could have been it and then this could have been the one and only appearance of Batwoman like she comes she hands over the mantle and she disappears again forever right I mean there's all kinds of different story festivals anyway enough of that unless you guys have any other thoughts I was gonna say I absolutely love that Kathy and Barbara are on the ship and you see them running the length of the (laughs) ship and at the end of the ship 
they discover their secret identities. Yeah. And it it reminds me of, I guess it's a world's finest. I'm not exactly sure where Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne were sharing yep. a cabin on a ship. So ships are very dangerous in for the discovering the secret identity. For your secret for keeping your secret identity. <laughs> no, that's a great one. That's actually in Superman number 76. I was going to bring okay. that up too. That's the same thing <laughs> where they found each other's identity out. We have to mention my second favorite other than that Batwoman panel is where Dick is talking to Babs on the phone and he's like, "Yeah, sure, I'd love to come to the Island of a Thousand Thrills, but I'm a little tied up here." And and then Lori's like, "Richard." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That panel's gone in the maybe the whole page in the gallery. Do you think, though, it's, is it a Richard or is it more like Richard? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of Babs's musings, guys? Top of the next page where she's getting off the airport and she's thinking about Dick. So he says he's really kind of cute with his crush on me. And in my mind, I'm like, girl, same. <laughs> 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 now that I am a man of an age, I don't mind if there's like somebody, somebody younger. Yeah, technically someone could be, oh my God, oh, 20 years younger and still be, <laughs> still be fine and upright to date. But wow, that's an odd thing to think. Someone could be 20 years younger than me and 30 years old. <laughs> that's pretty scary. I think she looks especially cute in the next panel. She's like, yeah. oh brother, what am I thinking? And I think this is really the best part of the dynamic. Dick has this crush on her, unattainable. We see this a lot more in the next couple issues. And she's like, somebody will turn up. I don't want to lead him on too much. I just thought that was a nice personal moment. And just for Lizanne, she's in a green and white striped shirt. I was going to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that whole page where Kathy and Barbara are walking down the street, I think all of those panels are great. And especially like the surprised look on Bab's face. Yeah, that's a great panel. Yeah. No, Bob Brown, we don't talk about him very much. I mean, he did a lot of Batman. This is his only appearance in Batman Family. I almost did him for the subject, but I chose Calman instead. But he did a lot of Batman underrated. I won't go so far as to say workmanlike, but close to it. I'm sure a lot of the illustrators at that time probably did come up from the advertising world or were trained to create art and artboards for advertising and women's fashion. So yeah. you find a lot of women's faces are very beautiful and expressive too. And it's not a really wooden expression. It's you see the change in their eyes and their face and their mouth. I think that's also very attractive too in terms of the art. They draw women very, very well. Whereas you see a lot of illustrators nowadays, I think struggle a little bit more with female expression. One quick story point I want to point out. I do love the fact that they point out where the first time you see the big moth eating away at the prison, that is fake. But the second time, like above old Ironsides, those moths are real. And he said, I use the real moths because I thought everyone would think that they're fake. I do like that story part. I think that's kind of that clever. clever. Yeah. But that enables them to jump on top of the right. moths, I guess. <laughs> Does it really matter? <laughs> <laughs> If you guys have anything else to add before we ride the Ferris wheel at the end. Kathy, for being retired, had some pretty good gymnastics moves throughout the fight. So I um, just wanted to mention that. Well, I do want to ask a question. So yeah, when when the when Killer Moth is, is trying to capture old Ironsides, he's on his robot giant moth, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a real gun because we use, we use it later. You know, he gets he get the goo gun. He gets captured in by Batwoman. But is this an illusion? Like, is him capturing 
Ironsides and Illusion, or is that actually the goop gun? So is he going to cloak the ship and sail it away versus actually capture it in the glue gun? I don't. Yeah, I don't that's a good question. That. Good question. That is an interesting question, and that's going to inspire a 12-issue miniseries <laughs> <laughs> telling the backstory of all of that. Grant Morrison's <laughs> cooking one up right now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, Sean, I know you want to talk about the uh, carnival scene at the end. The only thing I wish I would have changed or could have changed is Kathy owns a carnival. Mm -hmm. Oh, how I wish they would have made her owner of a circus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Because then you could have the Hills Brothers Circus and the Haley Circus and then her circus. And maybe times being what they were, maybe they all would have to merge. Maybe they had to merge. In order to stay stay alive. And I think my question is, so they're on this Ferris wheel. I'm guessing slash assuming making up that this is at the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. Because in the background, there's a roller coaster. Carnivals definitely have Ferris wheels. But I don't (laughs) think carnivals have roller coasters. So I'm, I'm assuming this is at the Isle of a Thousand Thrills, right? Or am I just... Uh, or maybe they just thinking... took the projector from the bad guys. <laughs> the tornado is the name of the roller coaster. So I'm... roller coasters are permanent. You don't take <laughs> down a roller coaster and put it back up every time you travel down the way to Metropolis. Yeah, I do like the way that two stories in a row, Bob Zek is ending these stories with conversations. Like last issue, it was between Dick and Duella. And this issue, it's Babs and Kathy. This interpersonal stuff is the most interesting part of it. And it's really a good way to end it. And I love the next issue box at the bottom. And this is an unintended segue into our next segment. But this discussion at the end, that is very 70s police procedural television show you know the case would wrap up and then they'd always be back at the precinct or back somewhere saying something before the end of the show now that is not my trip to gabriel's horn i have other things but we will talk about gabriel's horn we are going to go there in the segment we take a trip to gabriel's horn the hip happening hangout for the teen titans in the 1970s and we're going to talk about the most 1970s moment in the main story what do you guys have I'm really bad at this. I scoured the story over and over again, and I, and I missed the women's lib. That's definitely would be a strong contender. I just came up with the Ferris wheel for 50 cents. That was ah, my... yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. That's one Sorry, I Sean. That, that was my stinger, but I do have another one. The, so that was really the best I could do. I, I really scoured the story to find those 70s moments, and I, and I and that was the best I could do. And all I had some corded phones. Yep. I did like page five. They had suitcases without wheels. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's a good one. That so you look at the that... airport, people are carrying their suitcases. There are no wheels on those suitcases. So that's that is... and the Ferris wheel. That's probably the next best, at least for me. I think the luggage. Oh, that's definitely. I'll say mine, but yeah, I'm awarding it to Paul. Fantastic. Let me add one more just to piggyback off that. Just having people walking through the airport looking like they're actually enjoying the experience. <laughs> that's that's probably <laughs> my new pick now there you go (laughs) i did have a phone and technically this still could happen it's the fact that babs is reading letters like real letters that were sent through the mail now obviously you still can send a letter to someone and i guess it still happened the luggage without the oh my god that is fantastic that's wonderful ready to move on to the second story absolutely so the second story is the crisply named Bruce Wayne loses the guardianship of Dick Grayson, starring Batman and Robin, a 12-pager written by Bill Finger, 
with art by Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson that originally appeared back in, yet again, Batman number 20 from 1943. Before we even start, I want to say a word about Bill Finger. So I know I already did yeah. my Bat Family history. I'm not going to try to do a biography of Bill Finger. <laughs> There's a documentary, Batman and Bill on Hulu. I have not seen it. I don't have Hulu, but it's supposed to be pretty good. There's been a lot written about it. He was treated poorly by Bob Kane and by DC. Many others have written and spoken about it. I'm not going to try to do that. I'm just not qualified. But I couldn't let the last Bill Finger story we're going to read go with no mention. So instead, what I thought I'd do is list off just a few of his contributions to DC Comics. So these are things that most sources provide him with at least partial credit. So I'm not going to get into who created what, you know, and how much and all the rest. So I just wanted to give a perspective on those contributions. So, of course, Batman. Specifically, he's credited with his cowl, his color scheme, his cape, the name of Bruce Wayne, and writing the first two stories. Robin's Circus Origins, the Batmobile, Wayne Manor, the Batcave, and the name Gotham City. <laughs> okay. And so, notwithstanding those major things, just a partial list of other things he would not have exclusive credit for. Again, I don't want to get in trouble, but a list of significant characters. Ace the Bathound. Batmite. Bat Dash Girl gets Betty Kane, Calendar Man, Catman, Catwoman, of course, he wrote Batman number one, Clayface, the Crime Doctor, favorite of the Fire and Water Network, Commissioner Gordon, Green Lantern, oh, by the way, the Joker, okay, again, with a lot of Jerry Robinson and others, Killer Moth, who's in this very issue, Kite Man, hell yeah, <laughs> from Superman, Lana Lang and Lori Lamaris. The Mad Hatter, the Penguin, the Polka Dot Man, star of the Suicide Squad, the Red Hood, the Riddler, the Scarecrow, the Signal Man. Sorry, they can't <laughs> all be winners, Sean. Hugo Strange, Two-Face, Vicky Vale, Wildcat. Okay, that's just the list. And a couple of minor tidbits. Apparently, the Green Lantern villain, the Black Hand, was mm -hmm. created by John Broom and Gil Kane, but was a tribute to Bill Finger. Hand, Finger. I guess I didn't know that. And his initial appearance, he looked like Bill Finger. I did not know that. When I did know this, he wrote the Clock King episode for Batman 66. And that, as we all know, was the only Batman credit he ever received before his death in 1974. And then contrary to urban legend, he was not buried in an unnamed Potter's Field grave, which I have seen before, but instead his son did claim his body after his death and he was cremated according to his wishes. So we cannot overstate the impact Bill Finger has had on Batman, DC Comics, comics world in general. We could spend years doing a podcast just on that, but I just wanted to give a small tribute. And of course, to end on a positive note, we all know that DC finally gave Bill co-credit for the creation of Batman in comics and media in 2015, about time. Just wanted to say that about Bill Finger. Couldn't let it go by. Can I add something? Yes. I actually had the opportunity to meet Mark Tyler Nobleman, who was a big advocate for Bill Finger before DC gave Bill that posthumous credit. And he actually not only was a big advocate, but I think he's a big part of that documentary. I think he's written stories about it. And my first knowledge of this issue really came from the Kevin Smith podcast, which at the time was called Fat Man on Batman. I definitely encourage any of our listeners to go to that podcast. They go really into depth about Bill Finger and his contribution and how he really was not given the proper credit. But it was excellent. It was a really great story. And I, I got to meet Mark in person. He's a really super nice guy. So, And he's also been a big advocate for Siegel and Schuster. Cool. I did not know that. 
All right, so let's get into the story. So once again, this is Bruce Wayne loses the guardianship of Dick Grayson. Our story opens as Bruce and Dick are enjoying a good pillow fight, but they're interrupted by Alfred introducing guests to Wayne Manor, Dick's long-lost Uncle George and Aunt Clara. They have come to take Dick away and care for him to supposedly honor his late parents' wishes. Bruce and Dick refuse, of course, but George and Clara take him to court. Unfortunately, Bruce's reputation as a nightclubbing playboy come back to haunt him as the judge awards custody to George and Clara Grayson. A heart-rending farewell ensues as Dick packs up and leaves Wayne Manor. Bruce mopes around the rest of the day, but Alfred tells him he needs to keep a stiff upper lip and get out there and fight crime. After all, Fatso Foley is on the loose and Batman needs to bring him to justice. Who? Oh, the old double F is the gangster of the month. Apparently, Batman's, quote, lab results have predicted he would attempt a robbery at the public library that very night to steal a first edition Shakespeare. Let's mm. just go with it. In any event, Batman heads to the library to bust some heads, but he does so alone and with a heavy heart. No wisecrack, and he seems off his game. The crooks almost get the better of him, when Robin swings in to save the day, the dynamic duo make quick work of the thugs and have a happy reunion. <laughs> Dick sneaks back to his new home just in time for bed check. But then we see George pick up the phone and call Bruce Wayne and tell him to come over. The slimy uncle tells him he can have Dick back for a cool million bucks. Seems Uncle George doesn't really care about Dick. This has been a scam all along. Bruce is furious, but in a bit of a sticky wicket. He tells Alfred he would be happy to pay the million dollars, but it is against Batman's sworn code to make any kind of deal with criminals. Remember, this is 1943, long before Batman had to team up with a Joker and the Brave and the Bold or anybody else. <laughs> anyway, crafty Alfred suggests that Batman simply intimidate the couple and coerce them to sign a confession and leave town, which is exactly what he does. And it seems to work until Batman generously gives them time to pack. During that time, good old Uncle George enlists the aid of, you guessed it, Fatso Foley. They trap Batman when he comes back to the house. These crooks aren't much smarter than the others we've read about, since instead of just rubbing Batman out and dumping his body in the river, they trap him inside a decompression chamber. Again, let's just go with it. Uncle George celebrates a bit too much and then acts like any other drunk uncle at the reunion and calls Wayne Manor to brag to Bruce that his pal Batman is done for and he still owes him a million bucks. But Alfred takes the call and then he and Robin, of course, save Batman and capture Fatso Foley and all the evil relatives. The judge gives back custody to Dick to Bruce and Bruce gives Uncle George a swift kick in the pants to get out of town. The end. Whew. That brother-in-law, Todd, what did you think of this Batman family drama? Well, this is classic example of a golden age story, right? It's just, <laughs> it's great. It has ups and downs. The thing I really love most about comics and about superheroes is the secret identity aspect of their lives, you know, having these dual lives. And this is one of those stories that combines not only the drama of them being superheroes, but also the drama of them in their real lives and the things that could happen. So I really, you know, I love this story for a lot of those reasons and obviously it's very robin centric so again mm -hmm. that that's right up my wheelhouse this is kind of like a trope now of the guardian and and their ward and, and then you've got these two evil people that are trying to take him away and you know anyone familiar with annie and, ah! and <laughs> <laughs> that's one of sean's favorites i knew that. Ah! 
I have a long connection to the musical Annie. So why don't you tell them why? Okay, well, I'll, I'll go ahead. So it's I, a family story. It's a family story. So not only is this place where I actually worked, I worked on theater and I worked training animals and I worked for the trainer of Sandy from uh, the musical Annie. And he was the original Sandy uh, trainer and he'd been doing it for decades. He's still doing it now. And uh, I worked for him for a brief period and I was part of a 20th anniversary tour and Broadway production of Annie. So I have a very fondness for it, but it's also the reason why I'm here right now because on that tour, I met my wife, my future wife, who happens to be Paul's sister. And so that's how we're all connected. So this story does give me a little reminiscence of the musical Annie. And uh, obviously, I'm super fond of it for personal and professional reasons. Sean, were you employed ever by the musical Annie? Yes, yes, I was. Were you really? Yes, I absolutely was. So when I lived in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, literally, I lived across the street from the Fulton which is a beautiful historic theater and they did a production of annie and yes i was miss hannigan no 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 <laughs> I, I worked backstage at annie and yes this plot line is very rooster and lily getting the kids so sean you and i would have met backstage because that's pretty much you know as i was training the animals i was there backstage giving them commands and things like that so (laughs) so you and i would have been good buddies back then exactly right (laughs) now i will say reading bruce wayne loses the guardianship of dick grayson i hated this story i thought the artwork was horrible this was absolutely the worst batman story i had ever read when i was nine years old I do remember when I first got this issue, not liking this story at all. But I guess maybe two years ago now, even before the podcast came up, I decided to do a reread of Batman Family. And I even remember, oh, there are two fantastic stories in this year, but that middle story, I still remember being horrible. But thankfully, when I did reread it like two years ago, I'm like, oh my gosh, why did I think this was horrible? This is a great story. Honestly, maybe it is a little bit of the Annie influence. But also, I definitely know as much as I've gotten older, I have been able to go back and appreciate the earlier artwork, which I think is fantastic. Of course, knowing the history. The other thing, too, before the reread, I was convinced that George and Clara were imposters and fakes and charlatans. But they're not. It really is his uncle. I can't believe that. He really has like a bum of an uncle. I went back and read it three times to make sure of that this time because I was like, wait. I literally ignored half of your synopsis. No offense. Because I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to say something stupid on here that you'd have to edit out. I don't see anything that says that these people are faking it. Let's walk through real quick, point by point. Yeah, I like when they're in the trophy room. It's not in the back cave. They're just in a trophy room with an escalator behind them. (laughs) But there's no hat pin, Sean. I thought you'd be disappointed about that. Chronology, this must have happened before. That's true. That's true. This is 1943. (laughs) I love that they inserted this modern footnote at the bottom of page four. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah, yeah. Notice something different about Alfred? Yes, this took place before he lost weight and grew his mustache. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And one thing I thought you would not like, Sean, is when they go to the library, there are giant lions outside the library, just like the New York library. This is like a Big Apple moment, right? Well, this is one thing that is definitely true. You probably know I do work in a library. And we have, I don't know, 16, 17 books on display that are worth millions of dollars. 
Like that absolutely is true. <laughs> well, you better watch out if Matt's O'Foley's going to come. <laughs> what is he drinking that he gets so drunk? I just think it's hysterical. Moonshine? Absinthe. Absinthe. <laughs> And then the decompression chamber. I'm like, who has just happened to have a decompression chamber sitting around? I don't know. I just thought that was pretty funny. But then, of course, Robin and Alfred. And Alfred is using the penguin's umbrella out of the trophy room, which I love that. I love that. Yeah. But they did have some science in there for the kids about getting the bends. I was thinking there must have been something popular. Might have been why Finger chose to include the decompression chamber. He must have read something about people getting the bends or something like that. So he thought he'd, he'd include that. And one thing I want to say, because as a nine-year-old, I was so harsh on the art. There's a bunch of fantastic panels. They're kind of like four on one page. It's the page where Robin is about to go back to the house because he snuck out. And you see Batman has his hand on Robin's shoulder. I think that's a fantastic panel. The next panel where he's like sneaking yeah. in, the quote unquote camera is looking up. I think that's a great panel. Yeah. Two panels away where the woman is taking off her dowdy wig. The attitude of her brushing her hair with her head held up like that. I think that's fantastic. And then the great one of Bruce without his cow, his cow's like right behind him. Right there, that's four panels on one page that I think look great. And I'm glad that I'm able, that I've developed that appreciation for this classic art versus nine-year-old dumb me. One of my favorite panels is on the very last page, page 12, where Bruce gives Uncle George the, uh, <laughs> the boot. The pants. <laughs> Good old 1940s justice right there. <laughs> Funnily enough, when I was in a chorus line. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It was a mashup of chorus line and guys and dolls, you know? <laughs> so you ready to move on to the bad branding segment, Sean? Absolutely. We are going to take a look at all of the extra features in this issue, and that includes the ads and the letters page. And I'm going to kick it off with Aquaman and Twinkies and That Dirty Beach. And amazingly, we talk about the most 70s moment of the issue. This is the most 2020 moment because there's a bunch of sharks on a beach and the people can't go on the beach anymore because the sharks are coming <laughs> in. <laughs> Obviously, like any Twinkie ad is fantastic. And it's great that Aquaman has- Yeah, he gets one. This, yeah. So this, it's fantastic. I love it. Well, on the next page is one I think we'll all have something to say about. And that is the announcement of Dollar Comics. And so we have a couple of fantastic Neil Adams covers. Superman Family, which I bought. Obviously, right off the stands. I did not buy House of Mystery at the time, but boy, I would get it now. I got very excited when I saw Below. World's Finest was coming next. I loved that one. I loved Adventure Later. The other copy notes I thought were interesting. Absolutely no reprints. I mean, there's a lot of copy, but they do tout several times. I remember the getting four comics for the price of three, things like that. And so to this day, I smile when I see the Dollar Comics cover dress. So I don't know if you guys want to say anything about Dollar Comics, but that was a big one for me. You know, I did not get Superman Family when I was a kid, right? I may have gotten one issue. I, I can't really quite remember. But the one thing I I'm just going to talk about is, are just the house ads and how powerful they were, especially in the 80s. I love the house ads. I was as entertained by the house ads as I was by some of the stories. Just yeah. And it got me so excited for them. And that was a major difference for me between DC and Marvel Comics because you never saw those types of house ads. They were so well designed and well coordinated. They were announcing things maybe a week, you know, a month before something was coming out. So they really definitely were a major contribution for me to like get into the store every week and see what was new. I would have loved this when I was that age, just to see all these ads, see all these yeah. other stories. Bat Cousins, you can't 
see this because it's an audio podcast, but I have been nodding my head to everything <laughs> that Todd has said so hard that I now have to wear a neck brace. Every single word he was saying, I was nodding my head. I can't begin to tell you the love I have for Dollar Comics as a concept is just so fantastic. I either soon will be or just have been on Who's Editing, the Ciscoid, and as part of my comics line, I have quote unquote dollar comics. Now, of course, because inflation, they're not called dollar comics. I renamed them dynamic comics. Ah. <laughs> it was three or four times the size and lots of different stories. I just love that concept. It might be counterintuitive, but I didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't Richie Rich growing up. And I always felt that even though these were a dollar, you got a bunch of stories for that. So I was okay buying dollar comics. Now, I have to believe the first dollar comics I got probably were Batman family, and I was happy for it. Honestly, I could talk for the next two hours about dollar comics. I'm a sucker for anthology. I even like the modern anthology. Every quarter, DC does a different, like a, a Christmas one, one quarter, Valentine's, yeah. another holidays. DC has tried, and part of their roots, the anthology comics format, detective and action, adventure comics, they were all anthologies at the beginning. You know, Marvel has had various ones, but never had it really, you know, stick the way that DC keeps coming back to it so i do like that quite a bit and the dollar comics were the best of the anthology comics. stop it stop it my neck is hurting <laughs> <laughs> real quick i do want to mention there's an ad and our toy experts may know more about this for dinky toys the headline is join the dinky starfleet did anybody have these dinky toys i did not and i did not even remember them they have a dinky enterprise they have a, a ufo interceptor joe's car whatever that is oh space 1990 yeah. There you go. Todd just pointed that out. And UFO and others. I don't know if anybody had those. I mean, I Googled it on eBay and stuff and they look pretty cool. Looks like they had a Klingon bird of prey, but it's still hard to see the scale. Dinky, I'm imagining they're small. They're die cast metal. So ones on eBay do look beat up with the decals missing. I smell another Star Trek spinoff on Paramount Plus. Dink, <laughs> dinky, dinky Star Trek. <laughs> they're everyone small and just flying around. <laughs> the most important area of bat branding in this is the letter from Jeanette Kahn. We interrupt this comic to bring you a word from our new publisher. And there's a sketch by Neil Adams, who apparently dated Jeanette Kahn at one point. I had some dynamite magazines when I was younger, you know, mm -hmm. the Scholastic Fair. I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't, I didn't know who she was or anything, but it's a big deal. Her coming into DC, creative renaissance, late seventies into the eighties, her and Paul Levitz without them, it's just a big deal. So we're going to definitely include this. I encourage everybody to read her letter. It really gives her her background, what the management team is going to look like now at DC. And as a kid, I probably would have skipped over this. Nowadays, I find the history interesting. I find the business side interesting. And this was of course, right before the DC implosion. So she had to really struggle through some difficult waters coming up soon. I really remember reading this when I was a kid mm -hmm. and being really fascinated. You know, I was elementary school age kid, so I had no idea exactly what everything meant. But in retrospect, we look back on her career and really is probably the first time either at DC or Marvel that they brought somebody in from the outside that had never come up through comics. Mm -hmm. And she brought a new level of professionalism, not just in terms of sales, but also in ideas and recruiting talent. Just think about the line of, books that were started because of her influence, not just bringing in all these talent from the UK, but obviously you can see her push towards that vertigo line in DC. Yep. It really is amazing. You know, I'm sure there's a ton of people out there who are big Marvel fans and I am too, but DC, maybe because I was starting to read comics, like it, that creative renaissance that they had, and it was really mostly due to her, you know, what she did when she came to DC Comics and decisions she made and the, and the talent she brought up. 
She came in, they had some things that have been really successful. They had Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill at the time. And O'Neill did go back to Marvel for a bit and then came back. But the talent side of it, good point, Todd, because she was really adept at that. She was the one that pushed for the UK talent and all the rest. So can't say enough about her. We're not going to do another bio in this issue, but <laughs> I like Jeanette Khan. Two things really quickly. And I didn't know it necessarily at the time. It seemed that she was really willing to create new things, new products, new ideas yep. and bring them through. And I love that. And also, we'll try to have to add it to the show notes because I don't know off the top of my head. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Back Issue magazine. Mm -hmm. And there is a fantastic issue of Back Issue that talks about Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz and the DC offices in the 80s. And we'll try to include a link to that because that issue is fantastic. It's a little bit different for Back Issue because it is a little bit more like business oriented, yeah. but it's fantastic. I vaguely recall that. I have to go back and go, which issue that? That's a great idea, Sean. And I want to tell all my Back Cousins what appreciation I have for Cousin Paul because on the video feed, I saw him reaching over. And I 100% thought he was going to hold up that issue. <laughs> I felt like he had it ready to talk about. It. That's the admiration and respect I have for him. Because I felt for you sure. You gave me a little too much credit there. I was reaching across to write it down. So. <laughs> okay. Now the next thing, which is really cool, is we are going to enter the DC superstar galaxy of goodies. <laughs> and of course, this is a page from Heroes World. I am going to skip the thing that everybody loves. Oh, I can see the disappointment. <laughs> in my fat cousin's <laughs> face. But we're going to talk about some Matchbox, Batmobile, and the Batboat. And that's okay. We have a See the Light, which are like hand-cranked, hand-powered flashlights, which, man, how tiring would that be? I remember these flashlights. How tiring would that be? And everybody's doing it. I hope you, I hope you guys are home doing it. Please, please, please. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, of course, is Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. And they were like super hard plastic. I remember those. Now, you would think the stellar thing about this ad would be Power Records with Superman and Batman and an absolutely beautiful illustration by Neil Adams down in the corner. Mm -hmm. Normally, that would be the best thing. But Chris Franklin, I know you are salivating right now because we are going to talk about the Be A Star, Get The Super Friends car. <laughs> and that is the Super Friends Parade Dune Buggy with Aquaman and Robin in the front and Superman and Batman on the platform. They are in a you know heroic pose with their hands on their waist, but really they should be waving to the crowd because that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it looks like. And the copy says, the wildest thing on four wheels, driving will never be the same. Battery <laughs> operated with remote control and it's only $5.95. You probably can go on eBay and obviously it's not gonna be that much. It's probably $6.95 or $7.95. <laughs> it, it might be $10 probably. And they probably have like hundreds of them on there now. I think you might get some comments from that, Sean. <laughs> Maybe Todd McFarlane will remake this. Go. He's, he's <laughs> got all this new line of, uh, of toys out right now. Todd, if you're listening, please. Oh, please. he's a big listener of our podcast. Yeah, yeah, Paul will edit out the if. <laughs> Isn't he the one who just talks about Twinkies all the time? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we're going to go on to one of the favorite things about Batman family, and that's Batmail family. And as always, I am offering a hearty invitation to the reunion to Wayne Morrison, Rick Peterson, Scott R. Taylor, and Steve Pick. You've all had letters in this. If you're still listening to this, we would love to hear from you. One of these days, one of them is going to contact us. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true because I have been in contact with someone who did have a letter published in that male family. And 
they are going to be on on a future episode and i cannot wait i'm letting out the secret sorry about that. that's great and it's nice because wayne morrison talks about how he wants to see catwoman back in the issue and we agree with that that's one thing i do wish batman family would have leaned a little bit more heavily into the classic rogues gallery i i really would have really would have i thought it was cool how wayne was totally surprised by the fact that it was joker's daughter that got me thinking i'm like man we will never have that level of surprise because we know it even though we can still enjoy the stories he probably was like what <laughs> i can just imagine little wayne <laughs> what our bat cousin bob did a good job on that story Yes, he did. <laughs> I like that Rick was comparing Agatha Christie's story, and I think that's fantastic. Scott is talking about Vince Coletta, how wonderful he is, and he's <laughs> topping himself with each issue. Yeah, Shades of the Fire and Water Network right there. That is fantastic, Scott. You you go. He gets it right. He says the interior was pleasing, though Vince Coletta keeps topping himself. I would prefer to see other anchors. And then he talks about the backgrounds, which I thought was fascinating. When Vince focuses on the character, they're beautiful. Yet then we get blank backgrounds. And Steve brings up the interesting conundrum because Steve Pick wants more and more reprints and especially more recent reprints. It is a toss up because it was great reading these reprints. The next story I absolutely love. I still remember it to this day from the first time I read it. It's one of my favorite bat stories ever. But yeah, that's the trade-off. Do you give up page counts to reprints or do you give page counts to new stories? And I honestly don't know that I have a correct answer. If I read a reprint that I love, I'm glad there are reprints. If I read new stories that I love, I'm like, oh, thank goodness there was space for that. Okay, we are going to go on to that fantastic third story that I talked about. And that story is The Second Boy Wonder. And that stars Robin and Batman. It's six pages. The writer is Gardner Fox. The penciler is Carmine Infantino. The inker is Sid Green. And it originally appeared in Batman number 105, Robin in The Second Boy Wonder. Our tale begins with a splash page of Bruce Wayne shocked at the sight of someone other than Dick Grayson wearing the Robin costume. This new Robin challenges Batman to see if he can discover his secret identity. And our story proper begins in the Batmobile as Batman and Robin are speeding back home to the Batcave after a case. Our heroes are reminiscing about the good times they shared in pursuit of Gorilla Hardy's gang and what great fun it was when Robin was captured by them and tied up, but managed to escape and meet up with Bruce to rescue him. <laughs> ah, memories. When they reach the Batcave, Robin switches on the lights and says he can't wait for Alfred to bring them some food to eat. Batman changes back to Bruce, but Robin is still wearing his costume. Robin whips off his patented Harlequin face-altering mask to reveal a freckle-faced boy underneath who is definitely not Dick Grayson. The youth tells him that he is Fred Lloyd, the son of Hank Lloyd, the Olympic decathlon champion, and that the real Robin was injured in his scuffle with Gorilla Hardy's men, and that Dick asked Fred to fill in for him so that Batman would not be partnerless. The bat signal blazes in the sky, and when Bruce tells Jason that he has to stay in the Batcave, he tells Bruce that if he can't go with him, he'll reveal Batman's identity. Well, quicker than you can say, George is your uncle, the faux dynamic duo are back on their way to the Gotham Fun Park. When they get there, the police tell Bruce and Tim that they have Gorilla Hardy and his men trapped in the Hall of Mirrors. As expected in a setting with a Hall of Mirrors, Gorilla Hardy mistakenly shoots at an image of Batman, but he's not there. It was just a reflection. That gives Batman an idea, 
and he asks Stephanie for some help in angling a mirror just right so that Hardy crashes right into it. When they're back at the Batcave, Damien says that they must be ready to go pick up Dick from the Lloyd home, but both Bruce and Alfred tell him that he's a lot better at being Robin than Dick Grayson ever was. <laughs> Shocked and betrayed, another mask comes off, and it's revealed that all of this time, Fred Lloyd had actually been Dick Grayson in disguise. After the laughter ends, Bruce tells Dick that he really knew it was him, because when Fred turned on the lights, he knew right where the light switch was. <laughs> what did you guys think of the story? Again, this is another one of my favorites because it's a Robin-centric story. It's amazing. You look at the character of Freddy, looks an awful lot like Jason Todd, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> who did the art? Sorry. This was Carmine and Sid Green before the new look, Carmine and Fantino. Okay. So obviously Carmine had some sort of psychic, futuristic connection and was able to create a character that looks very similar to Jason Todd. I always loved the dynamic, not just the superhero identity, but the person personal identity and the dynamic there between Bruce and Alfred and Dick Grayson and that they're playing with him a little bit and then having Dick totally get upset at the very end and saying, oh, how could you have let me go or not think about me anymore? And they had the good old wink to the audience. And as a kid, I would have loved to look back. Oh, was there that moment where he actually switched the light on without actually feeling around for it? Yep. That's the kind of stuff that I, as a kid, I would have loved to have gone back and checked and made sure that they were being honest with their depiction. But yeah, I love this story. It was great. Yeah, the clue was there. That was fair. I had that note too. He's right there on the second page. I thought you'd like the logo, Sean. I do love that logo. <laughs> I don't know if Martin will like the fact that there's a modern logo on this story, but then there's that wonky Robin with the head inside the O across the top of the pages and some of the story pages. That won't be probably on the digital version. And it was nice because it probably took me a couple of Times, but that's how I realized that, oh, they're reprints. So I liked that they did that because it didn't let me know that it was a reprint. Exactly what you were saying. I do like that the quote unquote mystery is real and true and you theoretically could solve it. In a way, it puts me in mind of Encyclopedia Brown. I loved reading those books as a mm. kid because they were real stories that you could solve. Sometimes some of these stories, you get to the end, it's like, oh, yes, I knew you were the criminal because 22nd Street in Gotham City runs parallel to 33rd <laughs> Street. How would we know? We wouldn't know that. But this definitely, like, you see it. And honestly, this story has continued to affect me to this day because Anytime I watch a TV show and someone enters a room, and in this case where they know exactly where the lights are, but if you see a character enter a room and they've never been there before, so often they don't even look around. Like if you go to a hotel and have never been there or you're applying for a job or whatever, if you go somewhere, you enter a space, the first thing you do is look around. Maybe your head doesn't swivel, but definitely your eyes look around to take in the room. And so often in movies and TV, that does not happen. And that literally is from this story, because I remember Bruce saying, oh, you went right to the lights, turned them on, you knew where it was. That has affected me to this day. So comics do have an impact in your life. It's also something where these writers had a lot of pages to fill. So you could tell a story like this. There isn't a criminal, I mean, you are trying to stop Gorilla Hardy, but that's not the real point of the story. The real point is the second Robin. Nowadays, you wouldn't really be able to tell a story like this or 
if you did, it would be in one of those anthologies mm -hmm. that they bring out for Valentine's Day or you know, mm -hmm. whatever, like around a certain theme. I love it. It's so lighthearted and wonderful. I remember the story from the first time I read it when I was nine years old. And I just want to add, I'm I'm really happy that Alfred finally lost that weight and grew uh, his mustache. <laughs> there should have been a little box. Readers, this was See? after he lost the <laughs> We told you. <laughs> All right. I think we're ready to move on to Bat Timeline, Sean. Absolutely. In this segment, we're going to take a look at the other titles that DC published this month and what the rest of the Batman family was doing at that time. And this is all thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. So we're going to discuss the Bat appearances, and then we have money to spend at the newsstand, and we're going to tell you what we are buying this month. And we're going to kick it off with Batman number 285. The villain is Dr. Zinzin, and it is the mystery of Christmas Lost. And I just realized, apparently, this is a Christmas story that I do not have. Ooh. As soon as I am done recording, I am going to double check this <laughs> and see if it's on the DC Universe Infinite app. But it's, it's a great cover. Batman in the clutches of Dr. Zinzin. And there is a bear demon behind them. And they're about he's about to strike. There's no holly on the cover, so it's hard to tell. <laughs> so we don't have any Brave in the Bold this month. But we do have Detective, number 468. I got to spend a little time here, guys. This is the finale of the Calculator Saga. This is one of my favorite comic books of all time. Not the best, but one of my favorites. I love it. So first of all, there's a fantastic cover by Jim Aparo. And as our friend Bob Rosakis mentioned in the interview, this was the first Marshall Rogers art and detective. And it looks fantastic. It's really fresh, <laughs> energetic. I reread it the other night. I'm sure this is what got him the eventual gig a few issues later with Steve Englehart. Steve Englehart actually starts writing Detective with the following issue with art by Walt Simonson for a couple issues before Rogers joins him. Their guest stars galore. It was like the Justice League and Detective. Great fight in the JLA satellite. Batman tricks the calculator into trapping himself at the end with a giant spinning disc which is fabulous so it's great overall i know that the post-crisis calculator who's the computer expert sort of the anti-oracle much better character it's easily translated to other media it's been on tv movies whatever but i will always have love for this crazy guy who boop boop boops on his chest and stuff spits out his head like green lantern anyway gone on too long but detective comics 468 great issue and the next issue is justice league of america number 140 and it is no man escapes the manhunter and of course, it's the Justice League, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Black Canary, and an appearance from the Guardians of the Universe. And they are going up against Manhunter, the privateer. And the cover is great because Manhunter is breaking through a wall and he's grabbing Green Lantern. All the heroes are trying to save him. It's a great story. That's cool because it was back when Justice League was 50 cents. Mm -hmm. And it was 33 pages written by Steve Englehart. And of course, the penciler is dick dylan as it always was and unfortunately we don't have any super friends or teen titans this month even though we have batman family 10 which was a great book it's sad because we don't have super friends or teen titans and we also don't have world's finest or any other batman family appearances amazing there's three books with batman in it this month todd you want to go first with some of your picks 
Yeah, again, this is really one of the first months that I ever bought comics. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the comics that I did buy. I definitely did buy Batman 285. I remember having that and eventually the cover tore off of that book, but I remember <laughs> having that for, yep. for many, many years. I also had Amazing Spider-Man number 166. That was mm. a great book. I loved the reptile as a bad guy. And, and then there was this other character that was very similar to him, the Stegron. That I would have definitely purchased. I had a weird fascination with Terra Man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but I would would definitely have purchased Action Comics number 469. You know, I had that on my list too, but I, I want to mention it, Sean, because that one has a Christmas backup story, Clark Kent's Lonely Christmas. Oh, I'll have words about this. All right, all right, well. <laughs> and this is a month where you have Christmas comics, so I would have definitely bought a bunch of these if they had any kind of theme. So that would have been Little Archie 115. I would have bought that for sure. And Archie Comics Digest number 22. I would have bought that. I also was a huge fan of Captain Marvel and Black at him. So and whenever they had a battle or whenever they were fighting on a cover, I would have bought that. And that was number 28. Mm-hmm. Um, Upcoming movie star, Black Adam. And then the only one that I would not have purchased back then, but would have now, would have been Logan's Run number three, because mm-hmm. I'm a huge George Perez fan. And mm-hmm. I would have gone back in time and picked up all those issues if I had that ability. And then the last one, so I had a major fascination also with the Legion of Superheroes that came to me a little bit later as a, as a teenager. So I would definitely have gone back in time and purchased Karate Kid number seven. Even though he's very maligned by uh, some of the uh, Legion of Superheroes creators, I love Karate Kid. That would have been a definite pull on my list. Cool. All right, Sean, how about you? Okay, we'll zip through them because like you said, we met backstage of Annie and became good friends. We shared Clearly. a lot of the, we shared a lot of the same comic books. Action Comics number 469, which we talked about. However, you have got to look at this cover because it is fan- Fantastic. Terra Man is riding Superman, and I will move on to the next issue. Uh, the next issue is All Star Comics with the Super Squad, and it's great because it is Vandal Savage. Now, I generally do like superhero costumes. I like Vandal Savage in his regular outfit, not his green unitard. Yeah, that's um, not much of a costume. It's not a great look, but I love that villain. The next one, of course, is Archie Comics Digest. Love Christmas, love Digest. So yes, I picked that one as well. The Flash, number 247. I love it because Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash is in and he is in suspended animation under Abracadabra. And Barry is running in and trying to save him. That's a fantastic one. I had that one too. That's a great one. Bonkers, number six. We have that. And that, of course, has Captain Boomerang, Captain Cold, Captain Stingery, Copperhead, Lex Luthor, Star Sapphire Wizard. Captain Comet, Green Arrow, Hawkman, Black Mary, <laughs> Funky Flashman. And of course, we know what Bonkers is. I don't even think we have to say it anymore. I think that Cavalier was in that too. <laughs> <laughs> he was the mastermind. I got Shazam 28 as well. And of course, Superman Family, which we talked about the dollar comic. Let's take just a second about that cover. That is a beautiful cover. Awesome. Okay. The Superman family, first dollar comic. You've got Superman flying, holding on to Lois, and Supergirl flying, holding on to Jimmy Olsen. Wait, what? No, my Superman family number 182, it only has crypto. Crypto's the only star. Of- <laughs> you got me. You got me. Is I'm there- like, did I make a mistake? <laughs> oh my gosh, all these years, I never noticed that there were other people in that cover. I only saw Crypto. Anyway, keep going. Sean. And it's hard to draw dogs too. And yeah, uh, yeah, Neil Adams is a great illustrator. Yeah. And just to make sure Bat Cousins know, 
That's because of my love for crypto. My last issue is Spectacular Spider-Man number four. And of course, it is a Christmas story. The vulture is a bird of prey. I don't know if it's Christmas, but at least it's a snowy scene and I'm buying this in December. So I'm going to say it's a Christmas story. What are you getting, Paul? All right. Adventure 450 has the Weather Wizard versus Aquaman. You got David Michelini and Jim Aparo. I loved it when a villains from other books cross over. And mm -hmm. so you got the Weather Wizard from The Flash coming over to battle Aquaman, which is great. Plus, you got a Martian Manhunter backup. In Avengers, okay, number 157. Mm -hmm. Yet again, Sean, I've been tomahawked. An exciting Kirby <laughs> cover. I'm thinking maybe we got George Perez on the inside, but wah, wah. You know who oh, we no. got? Don Heck, oh. your favorite. Oh. Continuing my fascination with Beep Beep, the Roadrunner, <laughs> number 62. You've got Wiley Coyote getting a little violent with a tank. Uh -huh. He's after the Roadrunner looking for him, and he doesn't notice that the Roadrunner's right underneath him. I think that's a cute cover. Champions, number 12. I did not have this, but I wish I did. Bill Mantlo was the Bob Haney of Marvel. There's crazy stuff, but you've got John Byrne art. I read the Champions Marvel Masterworks a few years ago. I, I never bought the Champions and finally read it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Bob Layton doing inks on John Byrne. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic Four, number 180. Yet again, the dreaded Deadline Doom. Another Tomahawk reprint from FF101. <laughs> Marvel Tales, number 77. I mean, I bought Marvel Tales every month because it was how I read the old time mm. Spidey stories. This was the first part of the drug story that did not have the comics code. Now, the reprint does have the comics code. By this point, it had been amended. But this was the story that made some of those changes happen. You got Stan Lee and Gil Kane. Goodness rampaging hulk magazine mm. so this is number one i did not buy this i have the not showcase essentials of this now the rampaging hulk and they are some really enjoyable stories this one's a little funky it's about an alien coming to earth that the hulk has to fight but they're mainly written by doug men and this one had art by walt simonson great stuff superman 309 where somehow he goes blind but has a fantastic cover by jose luis garcia lopez Crazy his name. And then two last ones. I know I have a lot this month, but Underdog, number 11. I love the cartoon <laughs> Underdog. And here he is. The aliens are so cute. He's <laughs> He's got a baseball mitt on for some reason. I don't know whether the aliens stole his baseball or what, but he's punching their spaceship and he looks like an angry face. And the little aliens are, rah, 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 what's wrong? Why is he coming after us? <laughs> I just think that's a hysterical cover. And then last but not least, I have to mention Wonder Woman number 229. Yeah. First of all, this is a cover that's relatively famous today because it's more of a headlights type cover where Wonder Woman is chained up and thrusting her chest out. But last issue, when the off month of Batman Family was number 228, and that was where we saw Wonder Woman switch over to Earth 2 Wonder Woman during World War II. Uh... And that was because, of course, they wanted to conform to the television show. So this is the second part of that story. You've got Nazi rockets being shot at her. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez again on the cover. Jose Delbo on the inside. Sign me up. Wonder Woman had a lot of bad Bronze Age stories, but some of them can be pretty fun. Phew, that's it. And I'm not even adding mine up. I'm like way into debt the last few months because there was the Wonder Woman encyclopedia came out this month, which we didn't mention. But for good measure, we have to mention because that did come out. The soft cover volume two of the Encyclopedia of Comic Book Heroes. Now, we are not done at the newsstand. There are two more things we have to talk about. I'm surprised that no one picked Foom number 16. I thought Paul would pick that and I'd be able to, to chime in. <laughs> well, go ahead. So let's hear it. Well, all I would say is I would get it too. <laughs> yeah. At the time, I probably didn't even know what Foom was. 
I have never seen a real issue of Foom. I don't have any. I don't know that I've ever even seen them at a show or a comic book shop. Again, I wish they would reprint them along with Amazing World of DC yeah. Comics. I mean, I have all the Amazing Worlds, but I don't have any Fooms. I've seen them at shows, but I haven't bought any, but they're pretty cool. And finally, the newest feature of the newsstand is... How many comics does Richie Rich have on the shelf? <laughs> I love that for you this month. There are 12 Richie Rich comics this month. Unbelievable. <laughs> It's funny, Sean. I actually was going to mention that because I definitely bought a lot of Richie Rich when I was a kid, and I'm sure I would have bought at least two or three of those. But man, no wonder the kid was so flush. <laughs> he made a lot of money. And it's true. If I needed a comic fix and there was nothing there, if it was an interesting cover, probably if it would have been a Christmas cover or a Christmas story, I probably I would digest. I probably would have gotten I'm definitely not above any of the Harvey comics. I, I would have gotten it. Absolutely. Okay. We are now going to move on to our fourth story. And that fourth story, oh, there is no fourth story this issue. Ugh. But we are going to play a couple of podcast promos. And when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Your Halloween headquarters for the greatest podcast selection of classic horror films. The House of Frankenstein. Do modern houses scare you? <laughs> They're mortar, stone, and wood. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com for your favorite monsters and stars. Lon Chaney Jr. The creature that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town, and it's brought death with it. George Zuko. If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control. Peter Cushing. Is that what you want, Count Dracula? A last blaze of utter horror and violence. Christopher Lee. Revenge has spread over centuries and has just begun. Boris Karloff. Colin Clive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. And Don Knotts. So what is brave? How should I know? I'm chicken. Plus, only at Supermates Podcast, your favorite comic superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Wonder Woman, Superman, we meet again. You must pay for burying me. Check your local podcast listings for a location near you. All treats, no tricks. And you're chicken if you miss the house of Frankenstein. Welcome back. We have a lot of comments to get through because we dropped two episodes last month, including our surprise interview with the answer man, Bob Rosakis himself. We had a lot of fun talking to him, and it sounds like you all enjoyed the episode, too. So, Sean, do you want to get us started with the comments for that episode first? Heck yeah. First up, future guest, baddie Uncle Martin Gray says, Thanks for a terrific surprise. You know what a fan I am of Bob Rosakis, Elmont, New York. It's great to hear him talk about his beginnings and career. I remember being unfeasibly excited to see Bob's byline appearing on the non-letter pages and seeing his first stories. What I always enjoyed about Bob's work was that he'd bring back characters from Limbo, like Betty and Kathy, but also create such new folk as Quakemaster and Flame Splasher. He had the best hat. <laughs> I wanted Bob on the JLA book too. And of course, Bob created Amazing Man. It's a shame that superb series didn't come up in the conversation. Yeah, Martin, we could have talked to him all day, but we wanted to keep to our commitment of an hour that we made to him. So sorry we didn't get to Amazing Man, but maybe we'll get him on again someday. And if so, we'll make sure to bring that up. Martin goes on to say, Bob was one of us, the fan who got to write his heroes. I'm glad you asked about his production department work. From reading Dick Giordano's Meanwhile pages and the like, 
It sounds like Bob was at the forefront of many an innovation. And I was there when Bob got married, when he became a dad. And of course, as I've mentioned a boring amount of times, he answered a couple of my queries in the Answer Man column regarding Rich Buckler drawing himself on covers and the fibbing subtitle of Ghosts. Thank you, Bob. Martin, this is Sean. You can literally mention that every single time you ever are on the show or make a comment because that is spectacular. That, that's cool. Martin returns. I became a regular letter hack on this side of the pond. And like Bob, I got an in in the world of publishing due to the editor knowing my name from the letter calls. He showed it could be done. It's such a shame that the letter columns have gone. Yeah, no argument with that, Martin. We're enjoying reading these old letter columns like nobody's business. All right, next up, scary cousin Chris Franklinstein from our network weighs in. Great interview, fellas. Bob is a natural. He should have his own podcast. I'd love to listen to all his anecdotes from his life from comic fan to comic pro on a regular basis. We would, too. I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Rizakis over email for Back Issue. But hearing him in his own voice was a real treat. And now I know that Martha Kent's mother's family name was Hudson. The answer man still dropping knowledge on us. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool, Chris. I love that. Now we move on to another future guest, Captain Entropy, who sidles up to the bar at the reunion to offer his two cents. Wow. Bob Rizakis. Even when I was a kid and he was a grown up, he really was the comics creator who felt like one of us fans. And it was all true. I read a story years ago about Bob running down and tackling a purse snatcher when he was doing the parking lot job. Next time you have him on, and please let there be a next time, please ask him for his account of that. Oh, and more on the hundred other things he did in comics since then, please. <laughs> that was just great. Thank you so much for doing this. And thanks to Bat Cousin Martin for suggesting it, if my memory is correct. You are helping us all fulfill the mission of this network. Well, thanks, Captain. Very nice words. We appreciate it. And great to hear you recently on some episodes on the network. And we look forward to having you on our show, too, in the future. Next, we have Bat Cousin Mike Dennis. Sorry if I mispronounced your name, Mike, who adds, What an excellent interview, Bat fans. I loved hearing the experiences of Bob Rosakis, the answer man himself, and his experiences of working on Batman Family. I really enjoyed reading his Answer Man column and reading the answers to all those great obscure questions. It was interesting to hear how he decided to put the names to the questions. In a way, it feels like he was building a pre-internet chat community. <laughs> Much more polite, I think. <laughs> Comic mobiles sound like an amazing thing that I wish still existed. You and me both, brother. Bringing comics to the public would be an amazing job. But it was funny to hear how Bob was not allowed to park in front of all the places he wanted to. This was tons of fun to listen to, and you guys are fantastic. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Mike, for the nice words. Rob McCarthy, also known as the man who laughs, had to add, we finally answered the biggest question ever. How come JLA never listened to Captain Comet? And cousins, I'm going to tell you, Paul confided in the script that he's not exactly sure what this comment means. <laughs> and I'm not exactly sure either. I think Maybe it's a reference to the Secret Society of Supervillains special where they fought the Justice League. My guess is yes. If that is not right, write in and let us know and we'll try to figure it out. Excellent. And I'm known as the one who doesn't get things, so <laughs> you all should not be surprised. Speaking of not knowing things, Network All-Star Siskoid of the excellent FW Team Up and Ohatmu, or not, chimes in. Great interview. It was Mr. Rizakis' work on the Dial H strip that made me a diehard fan of it. And it was nice to hear that he was very entertaining in audio format, too. 
You know, I forgot about Dial H. We got to add that to the list if we ever get him in again. Yeah, I love Dial H. I'm trying to work on that Adventure Comics run. I'm missing a few issues. And I even love those stories. That's the part of his career where Carmine Infantino wasn't the fantastic artist. I still think he was like good. But yeah, I still love those stories. And it's so neat to see all the different heroes and villains. I, I love that series. A lot of fun. Next up, our friendly bat cousin Ido Bosnar also enjoyed the interview. Very much enjoyed the interview especially since Rosakis is one of the comics creators of yore who rarely gets booked on the various comics podcasts. I really enjoyed listening about his experience when he was with DC. Otherwise, wasn't it Jim Shooter who said that every comic is someone's first? It seems like that phrase is usually attributed to him. Hi, Ido. That may be true, but personally, I had always heard it was either Julie Schwartz or Mort Weisinger. Remember, Shooter got his start writing the Legion of Superheroes for Weisinger, so I'm betting he learned it from him, but we don't know. It's probably something that any number of people could have come up with, so I'm not sure it really matters. The point is, it used to be that way. <laughs> Modern comics make that difficult, obviously. With no fashion to critique on this episode, back cousin Liz Ann Oswald simply says, cool podcast as always was cool to hear about Bob's career in comics. Thanks, Lizanne. And then we end the comments on the interview episode with yet another future guest, that outsider Tim Price, who had this to say, great interview and discussion with Mr. Vizakis. Thanks for the great show, Bat Cousin. And thank you for listening, Tim. And we appreciate everybody listening. Not sure how many other interviews we're going to do, but to us, Bob Vizakis is so closely linked to Batman family in our minds that it was something we wanted to do from the start of the show. It was super fun and exciting for us to talk to Bob, and we just want to thank him once again. So thanks again, Bob. Now let's move on to the comments from Episode 9, The Devilish Daughters from the 13th Dimension, with our special guest, Dan Greenfield. Sean, do you want to get us rolling here, too? Creepy Uncle Chris Franklin, who has also written plenty of articles for the 13th Dimension, had this to say. Great show, guys. Glad Dan got to drop by. He's the one boss I don't mind coming to a family reunion I'm attending. Winky face emoji. <laughs> I'm honestly surprised Scarecrone isn't a thing now. It seems like a perfect legacy character for DC to exploit. As for how Dula could be Harvey Dent's kid, DC published some weird notions on the passage of time in this era of comics. JLA number 144 says that comic events actually happened when they were published Time just flows differently in the DCU. Does this explain the duel of plot holes? I don't even understand it enough to guess. Me neither. <laughs> the pajama art from the ad page is indeed all Neil Adams and Jick Giordano, with every image from the 1976 Super DC calendar. Sean, it looks like Chris hasn't noticed yet that we snuck into his house and stole that calendar, so let's not tell him, okay? <laughs> Chris goes on to say, was Blockbuster DC's first real acknowledgement of Marvel? I know books like The Inferior Five would lampoon the House of Ideas in a few years, but the very Hulk-like Mark Desmond may be the first analog from the company Stan and Jack built. He and Bruce Banner even have the same taste in pants. I'm glad this letter column told us who designed that Robin logo we all love. I hope that guy got some compensation. Oh, I'm sure he did, Chris. Uh, well, unless he signed it over to Bob Kane, but a bum. <laughs> And then Rob McCarthy replied, I think a lot of Bob Haney comics were spoofs of Marvel. Eclipso and Metamorpho feel like, let's do Marvel. Chris replied back, true, him and Arnold Drake over on the Doom Patrol were channeling a lot of the Marvel feel. Okay, so is Blockbuster the first time the big superhero editors of the time, Julie Schwartz and Mort Weisinger, acknowledged Marvel? Finally, Rob McCarthy came back. He said, I know how Robin figured out she was Two-Face's daughter. 
He went to Earth Prime, read the comics code, and figured out the married villain had kids. I am, for one, glad it was not Penguin. No one needs that in their heads. <sighs> New Bat Cousin commenter Subgum Doug chimes in with opinions about Dula. While this Joker's Daughter trilogy was an exciting story with the Batman family, it didn't make the case for the daughter to become a hero or to get sponsored as a Titan. In the story, I feel that Dula is concentrating too much on the trappings of superhero-ness and not enough on what superheroes do, because that's what determines whether you are one. Surely the Teen Titans don't admit new members on the basis of a cape, gadget, cool code name, or, of all things, whether you've outed another Titan. <laughs> Did you use your talents, Dula, to help someone in trouble or at any point during this trilogy? Because that would be the sin qua non of heroes, the thing you have to do. And cousins, that's S-I-N-E-Q-U-A-N-O-N, -E which I'm assuming is Latin for words Sean can't pronounce. He goes on to say, but then Alfred gets it for sure. No powers, utility belt, or such, but he got the job done in a four-page story. Sponsor Alfred for the Titans. Well said, Doug. I like that idea. Next up, Bat Sister Lizanne Oswalt dropped by the gardens to add an impressive podcast, most impressive. It's cool seeing the Joker's daughter in this comic again and having her fight Batgirl as well as Robin. It's fun to see Dola disguised as a daughter of everyone else. So the Joker's daughter would not be arresting for hitting Batgirl. This was all in the 70s. Still, there is a worse crime than murder, and Barbara committed it. Did Big Bird have to die so Barbara Gordon could have that jacket and ascot? Jeez, that is so bright freaking yellow. <laughs> Just to prove her point, Lizanne stops by again a little later and said, you know, I have said a few bad things about Batgirl and her fashion, and I feel bad. I like Batgirl. She's a fun character, and I have read her comics over the years. And hey, here she is in the jacket she wore in this issue. And then she posted a video of Big Bird singing to children. <laughs> Back to Lizanne. So let me get this straight. Mr. Buns of Steel, Dick Grayson, has a utility belt with all sorts of weapons. <laughs> a van with a motorcycle in it. All sorts of bat gadgets. But it somehow doesn't have a spare mask. He even has small scissors in his utility belt to cut it. As for Ms. Dent, is it possible she legally changed her name? She may not have been originally named Duella. Or she might not have been his daughter. As we learned from the Batman the Animated Series, Harvey always had a second personality, the big bad Harv. Maybe the psychological issues that were floating in the back of his mind made him subconsciously name his daughter Dwella. Mm. The Alfred story was fine, although I'm glad they changed him to the new Alfred. As for them busting his chops about the meal, it was probably just good-natured ribbing. I'm sure the world's greatest detective can figure out how to make a peanut butter sandwich if need be. Liz Ann has comments about the toys, too. I never had the evil Knievel thing, but when it was repurposed to Team America, the bike for the Marauder was made from the same mold. We didn't know that, Lizanne, so thanks for that info. She goes on to say, wait, did they make an actual Joker's daughter action figure? It looks pretty cool. Nope, Lizanne, they were custom made by Dan Greenfield, or he bought custom ones. Thanks again for all the comments. Network All-Star, and by the time this episode is posted, newlywed Rob Kelly pipes in. Great hearing Dan on the show. Looking at the Alfred Solo story pages, it's kind of amazing that he never got his own title, considering how much DC was publishing books like that in the late 1940s and 1950s. As you mentioned last month, Duella is really a glutton for punishment when it comes to wearing multiple masks on top of one another. Related, I laughed out loud every time anybody said Scarecrone. And of course, the yeoman purser of the Batman family, Martin Gray, had a few words for us. 
Hi, Bat Cousins. Sorry I'm late for the latest reunion, but I'm on a cruise to Canada's maritime provinces and New England. I shall be meeting Bat Cousin Ange along the way. It's not all pleasure. I'm scoping out the ship for a possible Batman family cruise in 2023. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't get peace to sleep because of the comings and goings on in the next stateroom. Some playboy and reporter have been forced to share, and they make so much noise. <laughs> I would like to be on either side of that wall. <laughs> and Martin talks about the Batman family cruise. I don't know about that, but I will be at the Baltimore Comic-Con on the Sunday of the con. So if any Batman family cousins want to meet me, just let me know through our comments and we'll make time to talk about Batman family. Martin Gray goes on. Anyway, thanks for a great show. It's fab that the guests have started appearing. Dan's 13th Dimension is such a great website. We certainly agree with that, Martin. I love it. Yeah. Martin goes on to say, I also bought this issue when it came out and loved it. The conclusion of the Joker's daughter story didn't disappoint, even if, as pointed out, it didn't make a lot of sense. If you want to prove you can be a superhero, why make such a nuisance of yourself? You can always do heroic things. Heck, look at Kathy and Betty Kane, the original Bat Queens. Uncle Irving's art really is the best. Has Babs ever had such great hair? And look at that overwrought expression on Dick's face as he realizes the mask is gone. It's like Harvey Dent's reaction to his tragic assault. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if Babs had taken up Lori's letter column challenge and Bob had written Battle of the Boy Wonders Babes? I'd buy that for 50 cents. Babs seems the obvious winner, but maybe Uncle Frank had taught Lori a few moves. I won't comment on the logos for the reprints as you've done it for me. So kind. The Alfred strip was another delight. I could read about the original battling butler all day. The modern version is so much duller. Blockbuster is a fun character. The idea that it's the charms of Bruce Wayne, which soothe his savage beast, is a hoot. The modern second version is so much less fun. And he has terrible hair. Oh dear. Last time I was bemoaning the modern Jason Bard. Now I'm slogging off the modern Alfred and Blockbuster. I'm right through. As always, Martin, thank you for the comments. But however you find your joy is up to you. <laughs> Next up, Bat Cousin Brett Michael Young comes by. Hey, Bat Cousins, sorry I'm late for the latest reunion. I brought some good mustard. Uncle Steve always brings the extra size store brand yellow stuff because he's a monster. <laughs> Great Batgirl and Robin story. We gotta love Dick's groovy van being decked out with white wall tires and the fringe from Doctor Strange's cave. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they didn't get any rotten fruit stains on his shag carpet interior on the way back to campus. And of course, finally, the mystery of the Joker's daughter is revealed. Turns out she's actually a disturbed young woman with an evolving jawline and unlimited funds. Good for her. Definitely Teen Titans material. A lot of our listeners seem to take issue with Duelist's strategy for becoming a Teen Titan. But hey, it worked for her. The most 70s moment in the story was definitely the Riddler's daughter making trouble in the restaurant kitchen. As a former bartender, I can promise you, these days, if you disrespect a kitchen in front of a bunch of burnout, cooked-up chefs on their third open close in a row, you'll end up in the fryer. Oof, sounds like you worked in a rough kitchen there. I found the blockbuster story from Detective Comics on DC Universe. I agree, great fight images. I'm not the biggest Carmine Infantino fan, but I always like his patented jogging-through punch like Batman lands on the blockbuster. It always looked like a fun way to clock somebody. By the way, the other story in that detective issue as an insane elongated man story where he pokes a guy in the eye with his nose and then stretches out on his kneecaps to knock out two other baddies. Yeah, they were some fun. I have the elongated man showcase and there's yeah. some wild stories in there. That's It's good stuff. 
Okay, got to run. Cousin Elvin and his wife went to Nashville for a weekend and now are really into line dancing. They're starting the music, so I'm going to go make a paper towel mask so I can sneak away without anybody recognizing me. Also, oh my God, those Dwella Dent Megu dolls. Thanks for the nightmare fuel. Dave B. Ryan agrees. Those lady Joker dolls in the last photo are pretty creepy. They look like they'd come alive in the middle of the night and kill you in your sleep. But then I think dolls in general are pretty creepy. Not all, but most. For me, the highlights of the Batman Family series are the Mike Grell story in the first issue. That established a nice dynamic between the Robin and Batgirl characters. Right about the time Grell began his Fantastic Warlord series in first issue special eight, then in its own series. And then the Marshall Rogers, Michael Golden, Jim Starlin, Howard Chaikin, and Don Newton art in the later half of the series. And what appears to be outstanding inventory work after Batman Family was canceled that ran in the Batman Spectacular DC Special Series 15 with stories by Nasser, Golden, and Rogers, and in Detective Comics 481 and 482. Cousins, this is Sean. I am horrible with issue numbers, especially like the back half of Detective Family when they moved over to Detective. So I looked it up. And those stories are Ticket to Tragedy, which is the Batman on a Train story by Marshall Rogers, which is absolutely beautiful. And the two-part Not the Ultra Humanite story. And also, that Batman Spectacular, I really need to get that Spectacular. That's a great book, Sean. I think I have two of the stories reprinted someplace else, but yeah, I really need to get that. He concludes by saying, all casualties of the DC explosion that imploded. Mm -hmm. All great stuff, Dave. We agree. Bucky749 says... Hey, old chums, cousin Jeremy and I are back again. This time we brought a big batch of Colonel Gum's famous alphabet pasta salad and bat cookies made from Alfred's recipe. And we have the pack of dogs. So Jeremy and the dogs and I have organized a tug of war. Last but not least, James Hudson says, I got to admit, Jula Dent really has a fascination for me. Ever since discovering her existence in a strange conversation between Dick and Bruce, I had to learn more. And I know exactly what you're talking about. I researched it. It was Detective 474, and they're having the conversation. And there's a beautiful drawing of Wonder Girl and Jula from Marshall Rogers. He goes on to say, she is still a strange puzzle to me. A puzzle that has moved in our more modern era. Honestly, she may be my quest for the white buffalo or collection of different copies of Catcher on the Rye. Phew. Well, we got through them all, Sean. Do you want to now take a run through our social media section? Absolutely. And what a month it was. So I'm going to start off with Facebook because that has the least. But when I get to Twitter, we're replying to actually three different Twitter threads that really caught on. One was just our regular Batman family episode. One was the Bob Rosakis interview. And on Batman Day, I posted a pic of my Batman Family comics collection, and I can't believe how many likes that got. So thanks a lot. First up from Facebook, Fire and Water Podcast Network. So thanks a lot for that. Bruce Sutherland, Roger Preeb, Mike Peacock, Max Romero, Mike Thomas, Dan Greenfield, Mike Jameson, Alan Williams, Harold Wallen, Dan Jackson, Clinton Robinson, Cindy Healy, Keith G. Baker, Jay Campbell, Michael Best, Paul Wildenberger, Lucien Dessar, and James Williams. And now for the Twitter mentions, likes, replies, retweets, all of that kind of thing. Bat Cousins, you might want to visit the refreshment table because this is going to take a while. <laughs> Here we go. Dean Robert Willits, Lauren Sinskin-Art, 
Cortega, Dr. Bob's Kitchen, Isaac Swindle, J. John Patrick, DVS Flip, Antoine Brown, Shameda, Chammy Talks Comics, Wade Wayne, RGG 2112, The Collector, Glauber Nobrega, The Invisible Dumega, Culture Over Everything, Jim Bao, Adexon Acevedo, Dan of Cleves, Bill, Polar Man, Edwivo, Glazers Out, FF Quo, Sketcher, GGMU No, BNW Maelstrom, Chumpain Unguavo, Luke Lana 723, Firestorm Fan, Irredeemable Shag, Dr. Pop Culture, BGSU, Rodney Trainum, Tim Price, the Pod Crasher, Tony Wolf, Brian Chuafo, This Lightsaber Kills Fastest, Earth 2 Chris, Nick Spence, Tall Tower, Michael Thomas, Dave's Comics Heroes Blog, Liz Ann Oswald, Justin Steiner, For All Mankind SF, Digest Cast, Siskoid, Mountain Comics, Treasury Comics, Fire and Water Network, Ed Moore, Justice Trek Loves America, Into the Weird, It's Your Man, a comic book discussion podcast, Ward Hill Terry, Superman's Pal, Sean, not me, Sean, that is Sean RT72, Timothy D. Ayers, The Major, Cad, Martin Gray, at seven underscore soldiers, Sylvester Brown, Rodney Trainum, Karen Walker, The Bat Pod, The Terrible Hook, Rich Comic Fan, Comics Classicos, and John Livesey. And honestly, I practiced that three or four times, so I apologize for any names that I <laughs> butchered. I am very, very sorry. In this case, you can yell at me at the in the comments section because I probably deserve it. Most of you know that Running the Fire and Water podcast network has gotten more costly over the years and more and more shows were added, like ours. But if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of our other shows, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. We're not all Bruce Wayne or Richie Rich, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost. And we promise that no money will go towards buying the projector from the Isle of a Thousand Thrills. <laughs> that will do it for the feedback section and for episode 10 overall. Thanks again to our guest this episode, my bat brother-in-law, Todd Serenbetz. Sean, I think he did pretty well for his first ever podcast. Hopefully we'll hear him again soon. Yeah, he was really great. So we hope that you will join us next month for an all-new, all-Rosakis-written issue with Batgirl and Robin, Man Bat, and an Alfred and Commissioner Gordon story. We will also have our first international Bat-relative guest. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. 